When Dave was turning his life around and trying different things and figuring out what to do next, one of the places he looked was to the Howard Stern Show. And I think that was a really good choice. I know everybody is not a fan of Howard Stern, but I am. And I think that one of the best things about the show is that it's always been a place where people talk with this kind of brutal and funny honesty about themselves. One of Howard's innovations is that he took the strain of crude, dark, confessional comedy that's always been a big part of stand-up ever since Lenny Bruce. Howard figured out a way to turn that into radio, daily radio. Anyway, to get back to this guy, Dave, he loved that about the show. And in 2015, he was a few months sober in his early 40s, working as a waiter at Katz's Deli in New York City. When he was younger, he'd worked in television, hosting an interview show for college kids, but ruined that career with a heroin addiction. Now, sober, in recovery, he needed a project. And he decided to do a podcast about drugs with the feeling of the Howard Stern show. Like, he remembered the years when comedian Artie Lang was on Howard Stern, definitely my favorite period of Howard Stern. When Artie would come on, every day he would talk about his own drug problems, he would tell crazy stories, he would talk in this very real way about the mistakes that he was making in his life at that time that he was not able to stop. And Dave wanted to shoot for that. He would co-host the show with his friend Chris, who he had met Chris years before in rehab. They would spend hours in rehab smoking cigarettes and talking about the crazy things that they'd done on drugs. That's what they wanted their podcast to be. People would come on, tell wild drug stories, and very important to Dave, no recovery talk, which Dave found to be sanctimonious and annoying. This show is not necessarily about recovery. Mm-hmm. It's about drugs. Maybe eventually it will be. Who knows? If this show is ever about recovery, you got to get somebody else in this spot. I'm out. Okay, in case this isn't clear, in these recordings, Dave is the one with the deeper voice and the loud opinions. Chris is the other guy. The show is about drug stories. It's not about recovery. It's not about doing the next right thing. It's about the last wrong thing. But maybe with the evolution of your recovery, that's what the show will become. Notice how, at the end there, Chris is not agreeing with Dave. Chris is 10 years younger than Dave, but started drugs and drinking at an earlier age. He was just 11 or 12. And has way more extreme stories about it, including a year in prison. He's also spent way more time in rehab. And at this point, he'd been sober for nearly two years versus four months for Dave. And all of that gave him a different feeling about recovery and sobriety. He was game to talk about it. But Dave was adamant. Sobriety isn't all that entertaining. And first and foremost, he wanted the podcast to be entertaining. If this show is about recovery, it's going to be late. So they tell drug stories. It wasn't meant to be good for you. It was meant to be fun. They listed it in the comedy section of iTunes, not self-help. If you want self-help, Davis said, go to a meeting. They were going to call the show War Stories, but there was already a podcast called War Stories. It was about, you know, actual war with tanks and guns and stuff. So they came up with Dopey, which really uh, captures the spirit of the show perfectly. As Chris put it, two dopes talking about dope. Listen, I am so grateful to be sober, and I'm so grateful to be able to uh, talk about drugs, you know, like in a, in a way where I'm not feeling bad about it. You know, mm. it's, it's not even euphoric recall. It's just funny. And me. I think that's why we got along, because we felt safe sort of doing that with each other, you know? And sometimes you kind of feel a little judged with people when you sort of recount funny stuff that's happened to you. Yeah. On Dobie, there was going to be no judgment of drug use, past or present. But between this episode, episode one, and episode 143 of Dopey, just two and a half years later, 
their lives are going to change drastically. By episode 143, Dopey will sound completely different. And the episodes in between, they chronicle this story where so much happens to them and uh, some others, things lots of drug users face. But because, you know, podcasts and radio are so intimate, it all gets documented in the most unfiltered way. Dave and Chris wanted their show to be just for fun, but it ended up being so much more. Today we're going to have uh, two stories like this. Stories about a kind of um, DIY radio, uh, very different kinds of DIY radio, but in both stories it's amateurs inventing how to talk about what it is that they're going through. And really, both stories are dispatches from two very different battlefields. I know that sounds a little grand, but, but really, like this story from the opioid epidemic, and then the other story is from a small town in Syria, in the middle of the war that's going on there. And we hear about life during that war in this way that is much more personal and close up than we usually get. From WBEZ Chicago, it's This American Life. I'm Eric Glass. Stay with us. Act one, two dope kings. So, okay, remember the premise? Two guys, Dave and Chris, they have this podcast. It's called Dopey. Dana Chivas from our staff listened to dozens of hours of the podcast spanning two and a half years and tells the story of what happened. We've been talking about this podcast for five minutes already. And the whole point of the podcast is to tell crazy drug stories. So let's get right to one. This is from the very first episode. Chris tells the story. So I, um, I relapsed. Um, and I don't even want to say I relapsed. I just started using again after a brief period of abstinence. And I took a lot of Xanax, uh, about 60 bars, for those of you that know At what once? a bar is. No, over the period of about three or four days. So, so you took 120 milligrams over four days. Yeah, and I blacked out for about a week. And during that blackout, I robbed a veterinarian. I went into the veterinary clinic. I told them my cat was having seizures and I needed phenobarbital ASAP. Um, they told me something like, um, you know, we don't just hand out medications for the asking. Please fill out some paperwork and can we see your cat? Obviously, I had no cat with me. I did you have a cat at home? I did have a cat at home, Smeagol. And um, <laughs> so I filled out the paperwork. And um, while I was filling out the paperwork, I ended up putting it down and storming into the back, knocked over the nurse and the veterinarian, came into the medication <laughs> storage room and tried to stop me. Um, I got out. The police came. I struggled with the police and fought them and got a bunch of assaults on the police officers. There was a helicopter on the scene. It was a big, big deal. And just so you know something about Chris, he's burly. Chris is a, you're at least six feet. Yeah. Right? He's like one of these Massachusetts like Protestant white guys. He's very big and broad. And, and I would be scared if Chris got rowdy. Exactly. But I'm a gentle person. Very oh, gentle. Yes. Very gentle soul. Like a lamb. If Chris is the lamb in a drug addict's clothing, Dave is the border collie, constantly circling Chris, herding him between drug stories, nipping at his ankles. For his Boston accent... Well, you, you invite all your Facebook friends to like Dopey. No, I invite certain ones. Certain? Certain. <laughs> Which certain ones do you invite up to your room? Room. <laughs> I invite <Sarah>. certain <laughs> friends up to my room. Uh. Or for Chris's vaping habit. What's the flavor? This flavor is the milk inspired by Momofuku. Ugh. <laughs> this <laughs> vaping. It's the end of the world. And it's Chris, on the other like hand, cigarettes. comes across as a sweet, docile kind of dope who finds subtle ways to subvert Dave's alpha maleness. Like on episode 15, it's as easy as the word toodles. Okay, toodles. No, 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 we don't say toodles. Which Dave hates. 
So Chris starts saying it at the end of every show. All right, toodles. Please stop saying toodles. <laughs> they do very little editing, except they do bleep out people's last names. They want the show to be anonymous, which is why I'm not using last names either, by the way. And they use non-traditional bleeps, like this one. Dopey is not the kind of show you bring home to meet your parents. Dave and Chris swear a lot, for one thing. And obviously they're talking about heavy drug use. But it's not just that. They can be insensitive and insulting, too. It is not politically correct, by design. They use the kind of language you might forgive your grandfather for using, but which is harder to stomach coming from a 30- or 40-year-old today. And then sometimes there's also language you wouldn't forgive your grandfather for using. I'm not going to play you that stuff. On the first few episodes of Dopey, they run through most of their favorite drug stories. How Chris made wine from orange juice at rehab. How Dave once stayed up all night doing coke, heroin, and ecstasy before appearing on Howard Stern. How Chris shot crystal meth while at a brain injury clinic. They're not supposed to be engaging in recovery talk. But of course, the only reason Dopey can exist is because Dave and Chris are both in recovery. There'd be no Dopey without it. So recovery keeps slipping into the conversation. Even Dave does it. We, we're actually in a hurry because uh, I have to go qualify at an Alcoholics Anonymous meeting at 8. Yeah, it's a live episode of Dopey, basically. Basically, but more based on the recovery end of things. I'm a little bit nervous about it. Are you? Yeah. Just let it rip. Don't even think about it. That's the best way to do it. Chris actually has a scholarly knowledge of 12-step philosophy. And now and then he quotes by memory from the big book, which is sort of the Bible of Alcoholics Anonymous. And then they added the appendix to the book where they quote William James, who says that um, you have a spiritual uh, experience of the educational variety. That's what you're talking about. And it's actually In the beginning, for the first 20 episodes or so, they get like 500 downloads an episode, so barely an audience. But they start hearing from people right away. They get their first fan email from some guy named Troy three weeks after they upload the first episode. They can't believe anyone is listening to them. They call their newfound audience the Dopey Nation. Other people start emailing, leaving reviews on iTunes. Some listeners leave voicemails with their own war stories. Their downloads grow. By October, they average about 1,000 downloads an episode. So whoever the Dopey Nation is now, stay strong, Dopey Nation. There's a Reddit thread about Dopey. A few people even get Dopey tattoos with the show's logo and the word toodles underneath it. One guy takes Dave and Chris out to a steak dinner. He tells them he didn't get sober until he started listening to their show. Dave and Chris try to write back to every email they get. They respond to comments on Facebook and Twitter. People aren't turned off by the recovery talk. They like listening to sober guys having fun, enjoying life in recovery. It gives them hope. Chris says the listeners come for the debauchery and stay for the recovery. He calls this marketing strategy rope-a-dope. Dave and Chris know they have a finite number of drug stories between the two of them. So they develop a roster of recurring guests, friends of theirs who are also sober. Near celebrities like Rob Reiner's son, Nick, Dave's dad, Alan. And then there's a guy named Todd one of Dave's best friends from college. They got addicted to heroin together in their 20s. Dave always said if Todd got sober, he could be the third host of Dopey. And Todd really wants to be on Dopey. But Todd is never sober. All right, well, if you want a good story, you know who to call here. Yeah, you can give me six months sobriety time and you're on the show. <laughs> what? Yeah. <laughs> what are you talking about? I'm He's doing community service and stuff. He's giving back. Please. He's giving back, but what, you know... Just give me some 
clean time, and you could come. You could come back to the house. I'm not two weeks clean already. That's what a lie. That's a that's what a lie. What two weeks. What a, I'm a blood and urine. Since weed. Since you puffed weed. No, no, since I did dope. I smoked weed uh, three days ago. No, two days, two, three days ago. You're such a <laughs> liar. I, I Todd is one of the few recurring guests still actively using drugs. His life is in shambles. He's 42 and he can't hold down a job. He spends all his money on drugs, lives in his parents' apartment in Manhattan. He often just watches DVDs all day. How you doing, Todd? Miserable. How you guys doing? <laughs> That's Chris talking to Todd on episode 54. I'm doing all right. Miserable. Good, good. Miserable. Is that related to uh, substance abuse? Um, everything's related to substance. What's not related to substance abuse these days? Uh, less in my life. (laughs) (laughs) On this episode, Todd tells a very dopey story about getting so high on heroin he passed out in a subway station and then slept through a meeting at the unemployment office the next day. The call failed. Towards the end of this story, the call drops, and Dave says, Dude, that's the worst story I ever heard in my I thought it was fun for a second, and then I realized poor Todd is in big trouble. As a listener, to me it seems like Todd has a specific purpose on Dopey. He's a caricature of how not to treat your addiction. An example that Dave and Chris can hold up to their listeners and say, don't do it like this guy. When Dave and Chris talk about recovery, they often talk about abstinence and 12-step programs. That's what worked for them. But the science shows that opioid addiction is best treated with medications, like Suboxone and Methadone, which are associated with a 68% decrease in death. For a while on Dopey, Dave was pretty clear that he thought medications were dangerous, that you should learn to live without any substances. Chris was more middle of the road. Dave's opinions have changed by now. He feels like whatever works best for you is what you should do. Less than a year into making Dopey, Dave moved out of the apartment with the fish tank and in with his partner, Linda, and their six-year-old daughter. Chris eventually moved to Boston and started working towards a doctoral degree in psychology. He was dating a med student named Annie. They lived together, had a dog. He was also working part-time for his sister's company, which helps people who are struggling with addiction and other issues find treatment. And he was working every other weekend at a sober living house. By episode 96 of Dopey, they're getting about 3,000 listeners a show. They decide to relabel the show. They move it from the comedy section on iTunes to the self-help section, mainly because they thought they could compete better against other self-help podcasts, rather than comedy podcasts. But also because by now they've admitted to themselves, they are in fact a self-help show. But anyway, back to Todd. On Dopey, Todd is the foil to the sober good life, to their successes. Where he lacks control, Dave and Chris now exercise restraint. Where he is depressed, they are content. Where he can't hold down a job, they're raising children, getting advanced degrees, making a podcast every week. Do something good for yourself tomorrow. Just do something. I'll try. Just no, just do something. One thing is it, it all builds on each other. Right? Or you whatever. All right, bud. I love you. All right, guys. You're Chris, Dave. Have a great evening. All right, thanks for calling, Todd. You got it, boys. I'll talk to you later. All right, bud. Bye. Bye. Bye, peace. That's tough. Sad, sad call. Hello? Yo. What's going on? What's up, dude? On episode 126 last March, Todd's on the show again. This time, though, he's sober. 
He's been to detox and moved into a sober living house. He refused to go to rehab, so Dave and Chris arranged for him to move into the sober house where Chris works in Western Massachusetts. Sounds terrible. Did you just wake up? No, I've been up for hours, too many hours. I'll turn that frown upside down, Todd. This is the first really sober call on Dopey. That's Dave. He keeps saying how nice it is to talk to Todd when he's sober. He's happy to have his friend back, Lucid. Dave tells him he bought some new equipment for Dopey, a soundboard and three microphones, an extra for when Todd is back. I bought bought a board that was smaller, but it could only have two mics. And I was thinking, well, what do we do when Todd gets home? So I went out and I bought another another board. The Todd board. Yeah, all right, good. Thank you, I like that. I like that a lot. Dude, you remember? You remember when you and me were driving home from L.A.? And, uh... Todd lasted a few months at the sober living house. But he got bored, and one day he left. Moved back in with his parents, got a job. And then, in June... For those of you who don't know, um, this week was a terrible week uh, for me. Uh, My very, 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 very close friend, Todd, who was on Dopey. Anyway, Todd died um, a week ago, yesterday. So maybe uh, eight days ago, he died. Um, We don't know what happened. But I'm going to guess it was an overdose. Yeah. Todd died in his parents' house. He was 44 years old. Well, I I told my friends, I told my friends he died, and they said, well, he's basically the most likely candidate to die. And I I agreed with them, but, like, it's so sad to me that uh, he never gets to be sober and he never gets to be free. He's never free. Yeah. It's like... If you're out there and you think you're going to get away with it, you might not. You know what I mean? And, like, you guys should really know that it could all end. Somehow, after 20 years of heavy drug use, David never had a close friend die from an overdose. Todd is his first one. It changes things for him. Before, he'd laugh at the war stories, all these absurd situations and bad decisions that should kill you but didn't. He'd had the upper hand. But now he didn't anymore. Those things had killed one of his best friends. Dave was the one who introduced Chris and Todd. They weren't close friends. But even still, Dave thinks Chris is a little cold about his death. And Dave knows this is unfair, but he feels a little resentful towards Chris. Todd was in Chris's sober living facility right before he died. Why didn't he look out for him better? Todd's death last summer just happens to coincide with an uptick in downloads on Dopey. In July, their downloads double when they land their biggest celebrity interview yet. Artie Lang, the comedian who inspired Dopey. This is the guest. I won't tell you who I am yet because we'll let them guess. Uh, It's not Meryl Streep. He's episode 140, just two episodes after Todd's death. Artie tells a bunch of stories about getting high. On the Howard Stern Show, on an airplane, in a Santa suit. So I'm um, Santa Claus. The next morning, if you hit the, the beard, all this cocaine would come out of the beard. He's a little unhinged during the interview. Possibly high. Uh, what am I saying? Stay strong, Dopey Nation. Stay? Stay strong, Dopey Nation. Stay? <laughs> the autumn wind is a pirate. Here we go. Bustling in from sea 
With a rollicking song, he tramples along. On the next episode of Dopey, episode 141, Dave and Chris are on Skype. They do an arty recap before Dave changes the subject. Two weeks ago, I'm at work. Yeah. And, uh, you know. Oh, I know where you're going. Where he's going is, Dave wants to do a little recovery lesson. Two weeks before, Chris was acting weirdly with his sponsor, who called a friend of Chris's, who texted Dave. Dave texted Chris. But Chris didn't get back to him, so Dave sent a message to Annie, Chris's girlfriend. Chris eventually resurfaced and calmed everyone down, but he was ticked that Dave had contacted Annie. He was fine, just a little sleepy and out of it. No reason to scare his girlfriend. And then I got upset. There's just that it had to come back to Annie. And, like, I never would get upset if somebody expressed concern. Well, that's not true. You get upset when I'm concerned all the time. Yeah, it's, you take, it's like you, a door. You, every, every, you yeah, concern how, as a personal attack. How often do you text me, are you okay? I'm concerned. <laughs> you do it like every five minutes. This was but just two was weeks after Todd died. So Dave was admittedly on high alert. Okay. Yeah. And by the end of the story, he I sees it from Chris's perspective. It's one of those irritating things that happens to people in recovery. You act slightly off one day and everyone assumes you're using again. The next week, they do episode 142. Normally, they record the show on Friday night, and Chris puts it online on Saturday morning. But that Friday, Chris gets home from a work trip to Texas, and he's too exhausted to record the show. They agree to do it Saturday. Saturday comes around, and Chris is fighting with Annie. He tells Dave he's too upset to record the show. He needs to go to the gym. Then after the gym, he needs another hour. Dave's getting pissed. He knows the Dopey Nation is expecting an episode. They finally start recording late that night, around 11. Chris is lackluster. Dave's doing most of the work, providing most of the energy. And Chris keeps screwing up and saying things that they later have to bleep out, like where he went on the work trip, or his sister's name, or Dave's last name. It's amazing that Bob Forrest is driving around and thinks, you know who I should talk to? Dave. Why did you say my last name? Now you have to bleep it. Let me put it in my notes. It doesn't even work because we've changed it so much. Now it's twice. And what else? What is wrong with you? I don't know. I'm stupid. I can't. I can't. Twice. I said it once, right? Oh, Chris. What? How are we going to get the show out? I'll do it tonight. Dave's worried that Chris has lost interest in Dopey. That he's too busy with the other things in his life now. His girlfriend, his job, his doctorate. He starts wondering if Chris is going to quit. And if he does, what will happen to the show? They finally sign off at one in the morning. And stay strong, my brothers and sisters in that recovery. And toodles, I'm going to stop their call recorder. You can stay online, all right? Hey, but you don't have to say toodles. It's unnecessary. Toodles. So, hello and welcome to Dopey, the podcast about drugs, addiction, and dumb shit. And I am Dave. This is the next episode of Dopey, episode 143, a week later. For those uh, who aren't on Dopey social media, uh, the worst thing that could have ever happened happened, and uh, Chris relapsed and died. And here I am alone at my dad's... Um, 
with one microphone plugged into the mixer. Chris overdosed three days after episode 142. He'd been secretly using drugs again, probably for weeks. After that last episode they recorded together, Dave and Chris fought. First, Chris put the show online without bleeping out Dave's last name. Dave was pissed. He went in and fixed it, but inadvertently inserted 10 minutes of silence into the middle of the episode, which made Chris mad. So that Monday, they're fighting over text message all day. Dave couldn't make sense of what was going on with Chris. He told Chris it was fine if he didn't want to do Dopey anymore. But Chris said no, that wasn't it at all. He loved making Dopey. Dave believed him. But meanwhile, Chris was also fighting with Annie. She'd left their apartment and went to stay with her parents. Chris was distraught, crying. He asked Dave to call and check in on him. So Dave called him after midnight and told him he'd check in again in the morning, went to bed. He woke up at 6 a.m. to a text from Annie. She'd sent it in the middle of the night, asking Dave if he'd check on Chris. So at 6.30, Dave sent Chris a text message. A minute later, Chris wrote back, I'm good. As you like to hear, I'm sleeping. But not totally good. Alive. Nothing to worry about. We can talk later. At 10.30, Annie called Dave and told him that Chris was dead. In the next few days, Dave had to decide if he was going to do the show that week, or ever again. In the two and a half years of making Dopey together, they'd never missed a show. Dave thought if he skipped this week, he'd be letting the Dopey Nation down. It'd be like your drug dealer not showing up. And besides, drug users should know if somebody dies from a drug overdose. So three days after Chris's death, he recorded that episode of Dopey. And he calls Annie. Hello. Hey. You're on the, you're hey, on, you're, you? you're on the show. Oh, hello, everybody. How are you feeling? Oh, they start to piece together the mystery of Chris's death. David completely misread his behavior. In retrospect, he was probably high in the last episode of Dopey. He was probably high when he made that weird phone call to his sponsor. He was probably even high on the Artie Lang episode. Dave had been operating off the wrong story, that Chris wasn't interested in Dopey anymore. But Annie hadn't. She had noticed the strange ways Chris had been acting. He kept taking the dog for walks, for instance, when the dog didn't need to go out. He was staying up all night and sleeping during the day. She got suspicious he was using again, so she and Chris's sister arranged for a surprise drug test. On Monday, a guy showed up at their apartment and did a saliva test. That night, Annie told him she was going to stay with her parents. Chris left before her mom arrived to pick her up. Now, she realized, it was because he couldn't wait any longer to get high. Annie slept at her parents' house and went to work the next morning. But soon after, she went home to check on Chris. I walk in. The first thing I see is his shoes. So I figure, okay, he's here. And the vape is there. The keys are there. So I look at the couch. He's not sitting on the couch. And I look at the bed, and he's not there. And then I'm like, well, maybe the bathroom. I go into the bathroom. He's not there. And that's when I start panicking. And and as I walk into the bedroom, uh, on the side of of the bed, I found him uh, dead. I knew right away he was dead. Everything after that is somewhat... Chris had cocaine, Xanax, alcohol, and fentanyl in his system. He was 33 years old. 
Soon after, a package arrived for him at their apartment. It was filled with drugs, Percocet, cocaine, crack cocaine, heroin. I mean, um, when, when the news came, I, I got angry about it. And then the next morning I woke up and, um, you know, I felt the day between the last time I had spoken to him. You know what I mean? I felt the distance and I was like, it just felt like it was becoming real. And then this morning I woke up and I could hear his voice in my head. Like we were, like we were doing the show. I could hear his voice. And, um, and then I kind of woke up and it was another day since I had spoken to him and it just, it's like, it's like liquid becoming solid. You know what I mean? And it's like, you move away from this liquid feeling to this cold, solid truth that he is never going to come back and, and it's over. Dave hangs up with Annie and now he's got to end this episode of Dopey without Chris for the first time. We'll just end it the way we always end it, and we'll say, uh, stay strong, Dopey Nation. And um, I said I would never say this, but uh, Chris is dead, so I'll say toodles for Chris, and uh, we love you. And uh, everybody out there, please try to take care of yourself. All right. Dave still makes Dopey, by himself now. He's pulling in bigger guests, like the comedian Mark Marin and the rapper Killer Mike. He gets about 6,000 downloads an episode now. But it's not the same show. Dopey, as the nation knew it, is gone, along with Chris. It's not a buddy comedy anymore. It's more of a straight interview show. There are fewer war stories, and when there are, the tone is different. Dave is different. There's this one moment in episode 142, the last episode Dave and Chris did together, that I keep thinking about. Chris had just played a voicemail from a listener named Mike, who tells a story about hiding his pee in the closet of his bedroom. It's not important why. And afterwards, they get into a conversation about whether it's okay to laugh at drug stories. In the first episodes of Dopey, Dave was a solid yes on that. That was the whole point of the show. But now they flip sides. Chris says yes, it's fine to laugh. And Dave says this. Uh, I think it's funny, but the f- up thing, and, and like it might, it might, it might be the end of Dopey, right? Check this out. Like, I just feel like, like this guy, he's like everyone's laughing about everything they're doing, and then they can just drop dead. But what's the but what's the flip side? Morbid reality the whole time until you die? No, dude. I think it's funny. I think the urine is funny. I think that f- is hysterical. But it's like, it's like laughing on the train tracks and not seeing the f- train coming. I don't think morbid reality is better. No, of course not. Of co- I'm just saying it's sad, you know? We laugh on the train tracks, but we have the right to laugh on the train tracks. It'd be much different if someone had never struggled. And the truth is that when we were struggling, the person who would tell a story that was terrifying and laugh at it might have a better chance at reaching us and getting us to stop than the person who's morbid reality. I just feel responsible. And I think it's obviously because of Todd's death that like when we laugh at stuff, I just want to throw it out there that at any second, uh, Mike could be dead because Mike's still using, you know, and there's fentanyl everywhere and it's killing everybody. That's what I'm saying. How's that? Yes. No, of course. Yeah.
Dave told me he always thought Dopey was good for him and Chris, for their sobriety. He thought their creation would protect them. But it didn't. Chris is gone. Dopey, it turns out, was its own war story, playing out week by week. So now on the show, Dave's mission has changed. The drug stories aren't just in service of a laugh now. They're in service of an urgent message. You could die. Todd died. Chris died. You could die. Danny Chivas is one of the producers of our show. The Dopey Podcast, you can find it wherever you get your podcasts. Coming up, what happens when you go on the radio and make fun of a militant Islamist group who also happened to run your town because you're in Syria. That's in a minute from Chicago Public Radio when our program continues. American Life, Myra Glass. Each week on our program, of course, we choose a theme, bring you different kinds of stories on that theme. Today's show, wartime radio, people in battlefields of one kind or another using very, I don't know, DIY, grassroots level radio or podcasting to try to make sense of what is happening around them. We've arrived at Act Two of our program, Act Two. Good morning, Kefran Bell. So this next story is about somebody setting up a community radio station, but it lives in a place where to keep it on the air he has to put his life on the line. It's a war zone in Syria, in a small town called Kaframbel. That's Kaframbel spelled with a K, in the northwest part of the country, not far from the Turkish border. Rural town, surrounded by olive trees and fig trees. 30,000 people live there. And for almost eight years now, Kaframbel's been in a kind of no man's land where different factions have fought and now militant Islamists are in charge. Reporter Dana Balut heard about the station years before she ever listened to it. I crossed paths with the founder of the station back when I was covering the war in Syria for the Wall Street Journal. His name is Ra'ed, Ra'ed Fadis. He lives in Kafrenbil. We never met in person. I was based across the border in Lebanon because American press was mostly not allowed in Syria. But when the regime struck a town near Kafrenbil or ISIS was advancing and I needed to know the details from the ground, me and my colleagues would pull out our giant spreadsheet of contacts and go through them. Ra'ed was one of those names. I'd Skype him to confirm a death count or verify a location. Then, move on. Ra'ed was an activist. Before the radio station, he was sort of famous for these banners, these homemade signs written in big block letters on white sheets. He would bring them to protests, post pictures of them on Facebook and Twitter. I always saw them in my feed. They were witty. Like this one from Thanksgiving, a holiday Syria does not celebrate. Black Friday special offer. 
Whoever, wherever you are, bring your enemy and come to fight in Syria for free. Limited time offer. One of the most viral of these was after Caitlyn Jenner announced her new name, Caitlyn, spelled with a C and not a K like the other women's names in her family. Rides gave her this shout out. Caitlyn, he writes, spelling it with a C, we would write Kafrenbil with a C if it meant, like you, we could be free. I knew Ra'id had his own radio station, Radio Fresh, though I never tuned in back then. But around Thanksgiving last year, I heard Ra'id had been killed. It hit me harder than I expected. Saddened by the news, I listened for the first time. You can stream Radio Fresh on SoundCloud. There's hours and hours of programming. Listening through was like reliving the war from the inside, seeing it in a totally different way from deep in this small town. It was incredibly alive, hyper-local, sometimes utterly ordinary, people complaining about their neighbors, but other times, so radical, I couldn't believe they got away with it. Here's an example of that, one of the first things I heard. This satire program, called Kawalis al-Rais, backstage with the president, where an actor impersonating President Bashar al-Assad has made up conversations with an officer in his army. That's the actor making fun of the president's lisp, which is very pronounced. He's pretty spot on. I was shocked when I first heard this impression. My knee-jerk reaction was, oh my God, how did you not go to jail for this? Because in the past, that's what would have happened. Before listening to Radio Fresh, I had literally heard of two other places in the whole Arab world where anyone had tried to do political satire. One was Lebanon, where I'm from, and the other, Egypt, where, for a while, till the government ran him out of the country, they had their own version of Jon Stewart. And now, there were these guys, out of a small town in northern Syria. It completely blew my mind. I talked to a bunch of Ra'id's friends in Kafrenbil. They told me he was always a rebel. Before the uprising against the Syrian regime, he would curse the president in a way no one else dared. He mocked religious figures, too. His cousin told me this always made people super nervous. Everyone in town knew him as the guy who got kicked out of med school. Ra'id was a burly guy in his mid-40s, clean-shaven, warm eyes, mischievous face. He was sharp, taught himself English, ran a thriving small business. One of his best friends, Hadi Abdullah told me how Ra'ad started the radio station. So you know mosques, they have loudspeakers? These are the speakers for the call to prayer five times a day. At one point, early in the war, the Syrian military showed up in Kafrenbil and started shooting protesters. Ra'ad wanted to get those soldiers to defect. So he loaded up a bunch of recordings on a USB stick and had some friends at the mosque blast them over those speakers. Anti-regime slogans like... The regime is tricking you. The regime is using you. The regime is killing your family. There are no terrorists here. Everybody is civilian here. And the idea started from here. And Raid was like, why am I limiting myself to the mosque only? Why don't I start a radio station where I could just talk to people? So shortly after, when Raid found himself meeting with international groups, including the U.S. State Department, he pitched them his idea for a radio station. There are always opportunities in war, and this one would be an unusual chance to push back on the rules, make fun of people they could have never made fun of before. 
an opportunity to blast out ideas like free speech and democracy to whoever tuned in to 90.0 FM. نلتقي اليوم في حلقة جديدة من برنامج ضيف فريش بضيف جديد السيد سامي السلوم رئيس اتحاد المكاتب في كفرنبيل أهلا وسهلا فيك أهلا وسهلا This is a clip from the station's first few weeks on air, August 2013. While I was charmed by the station from the very first clip I heard, the people it was actually made for, the citizens of Kafrenbil, many of them were against it in the beginning. Here's Ra'ed himself on the second anniversary of Radio Fresh, one of the rare times he actually went on air. He's saying, in the beginning, there was a lot of talk about how the money for the radio would have been better spent on aid for families in need. People were hungry. They didn't have clean water or electricity. It seemed extravagant and frivolous to spend money on a radio show. But pretty early on, the station came up with a program that became indispensable throughout the village. It was called The Observatory. Radio Fresh put 24-7 watchmen in tall buildings to keep an eye out for airstrikes. As soon as they saw one, they radioed into the station, which would interrupt programming on, say, the nutritional benefits of lettuce with an air raid siren. They're saying planes are circling over Kafranbil. Ra'ad's response to the doubters was, the radio isn't frivolous. It's about saving lives. Before the observatory, people used to jerry-rig their own version of this alert system, buying a walkie-talkie and eavesdropping on the regime's frequencies. It was expensive, over $100, and parents hated how much the regime thugs would swear and cuss on the frequency. They didn't like that the kids overheard. The observatory was a clean version for the cost of a basic radio. Five dollars. The air raid warnings, they were just one of a slew of super practical, you live in a war zone and here's how to survive kind of programs. There's a medical show that teaches people how to administer first aid. That show has episodes on chemical burns, meningitis in kids, how to treat head injuries. Here the host is saying, when you think your skull is broken, or when you see blood or a clear fluid coming from your ears or nose, get medical help immediately. Radio Fresh had language learning programs in case you had to flee the country. They're doing the alphabet in this episode of Teach Me Turkish. More than 3.5 million Syrian refugees have landed in Turkey the last eight years. Everyone I talked to about Radio Fresh brought up this one program called The Complaints Show. It was Radio Fresh's version of a call-in show, except they couldn't actually have a call-in show because the regime had cut off all the phone lines. So they put up a bunch of little black boxes with a Radio Fresh sticker on them, all around town. People would drop in slips of paper with their answers to quiz shows, their comments and complaints. The host would choose one complaint each week to talk about. Often it's very specific stuff. At one point early on, a faction set up shop inside a school building, using it as a police station. 
Parents were worried about sending their kids to school in a building shared with criminals and thieves. Plus, the police station made the school an easy target for the regime. Parents told the rebels their concerns, but nothing happened. So they turned to Radio Fresh. Today we have a complaint that there is a police station in the same building as a school, and that, the broadcaster says, defies logic. Again, here's Ra'ed's friend Hadi. So if even people inside the police station heard the episode on the radio, they came right away to us and they told us, we're willing to leave the school, please tell the families, we're going to leave the place, we don't want any uh, trouble against us. And they did. They emptied the police station from all the militants that were there. People complained about the price and quality of their bread. Someone brought up their neighbor using a hole in the front yard as a bathroom while his actual bathroom was broken. The neighbor heard the episode and fixed his toilet. When I first heard the complaints show, it felt pretty familiar. We had a similar program in Lebanon, although not quite as small-towny as the neighbor's toilet. But listening hour after hour, what I realized was that this complaints show was doing something besides solving practical local problems. It was also spreading a revolutionary idea that you could voice your concerns and hold people accountable and get results. The guys at the station confirmed this was Ra'ed's original mission for the show. This, in a place where the rules were so recently non-negotiable and you just had to keep your head down and deal with it. The Complaints Show was just one of the many programs, debates, kids' shows, a series on Islam, doing this kind of work. Ra'a's vision of democracy meant everyone in Kafranbil had an equal say in what was happening, including women. He wanted their voices on the radio too. Although that was such a daring idea for Kafranbil, even his friend Hadi wondered whether it was possible. And I was like, how? He was like, easy. We find women, we hire them, we train them. This was bold because almost no women in the village worked outside the home. They took care of the kids and the homes. That was it. And it was bold because of who was running Kafranbil at the time. Ra'ed was always offending the local leaders, including just about everyone who was in charge of Kafranbil over the last eight years. First, the Free Syrian Army was offended by a banner, so they came to the radio station and kidnapped two guys. Next, ISIS attacked the station in 2013. A couple weeks later, they shot Ra'ed multiple times, almost killing him. But when Ra'ed was deciding to put women on the air in 2015, Two years after Radio Fresh had started, Kafranbil was run by a new extremist Islamist group, Nusra, Al-Qaeda's branch in Syria. Ra'id knew they wouldn't like this, but he went for it anyway. That's Hiba Abboud introducing the afternoon newscast. She's now the director of the women's division of Radio Fresh, she talked to me from the women's office over Skype. I never imagined that I would hear my own voice or that I would be a reporter. Never. Hiba was a young newlywed who had just moved to town when she heard that Radio Fresh was recruiting women to go on air. She'd been listening to the radio and was curious what it was like to make it. 
So she, along with 20 other women, went to the first training. They did icebreakers, spent three days on voice technique. I don't know if you know this one, but uh, when you put your pen in your mouth, this is a way to open up your voice. I did not know this one. Neither did most of the people at This American Life. And how to be as a presenter and how to take breaths from your belly. Hiba passed the training and began working at the station. Made news shows, programs about women's rights, interviews with local women who had lost their husbands in the war. By the time Ra'ed put Hiba and the other women on air in 2015, the Islamists in charge of Kafranbel, Nusra, already hated Radio Fresh. The station poked fun at them in all sorts of ways, for being illiterate, hypocritical. One satire depicted their religious police rushing people to the mosque without actually understanding the rules of prayer. Nusra assigned people to listen to Radio Fresh in shifts. They issued regular warnings and threats to the station whenever they heard something they didn't like. Now Radio Fresh got a lot of warnings for having women on air. Nusra considered their voices shameful, a form of nakedness. Finally, in January 2016, Nusra had had enough. They burst in one morning to shut the station down, broke down the door, faces covered, carrying machine guns. They took everything. Laptops, the transmitter, Hadi's hookah, flash drives. Nusra blindfolded Ra'ed and took him to the infamous Al-Uqab prison. They left two armed men at the station to keep anyone from coming in. Every day, Hiba would finish her housework and get dressed to go in for her usual shift. But there wasn't anywhere to go anymore. People started spreading rumors that Radio Fresh was over. Days passed. Nusra finally reached an agreement with Radio Fresh. They'd let Ra'ed go and return the equipment, under a few conditions. First, that the radio station wouldn't play music. Here's Ra'ed talking about the agreement, in English, actually, in an interview with the CBC. They started to say it's forbidden because it's haram in uh, Islam Sharia law. In their opinion, it's haram. Haram, sinful. Nusra had been on Ra'ed's case about playing music for a while. He's cheerfully defiant. It was like... Two years, they're asking me to stop playing music, but I refused. Finally, because they attacked the radio station more than three times and kidnapped me like three times. Kidnapped me like three times, he's saying. Then I stopped playing the music, but I decided to play sarcastic thing instead of that. Like animal sounds, like sheep, like birds. Frogs, dogs, chicken, and everything. Animal sounds. Radio Fresh replaced the jingles leading into each segment with animal noises. There was a rooster in the morning. Birds during the day. And after dark, of course, crickets. The CBC interviewer asked Ra'ed. What's the, the point of that? Why are you doing that? When the people hear animal voices, they will ask what's going on with Radio Fresh, and uh, the answer will be the Islamic armed groups banned the music from Radio Fresh because it's haram. I want them to just to think, to use their minds. Is it really haram? You can move the minds. You can move the ideas. Nusra's other big demand was for Radio Fresh to take women off the air completely. Ra'ed had a creative fix for this one, too. 
Again, here's Hibo. So we were having a meeting and he came and he told us that they wanted to transform our voices. You know, now we were going to use something to change our voices from female voices to male and that you wouldn't be able to tell that it was a female in the first place. So when we first heard what our voices sounded like, we were laughing. And it was so strange because we were like, really, this is like what people are going to listen to? But after a while, it just became normal. And it literally got to the point where I could tell you which girl was which voice. (laughs) But these days, Hiba just feels annoyed at the voice. And because the voice is so hard to listen to, Radio Fresh reduced how long women speak on the air to a fraction of what it was. By this past fall, the Assad regime had retaken swaths of the country. And in many other places, including Kafrenbil, extremists like Nusra were gaining power. People like Ra'id, people who didn't want Assad or the extremists, they barely held any ground. And finally, around Thanksgiving, Ra'id was assassinated. I read the news in a tweet, and later heard the whole story. He was in a car with two colleagues from the radio station. It was around noon. A van pulled up next to them and shot and killed Ra'id and his friend Hamoud Jnaid, then drove off. While Nusra never claimed responsibility for the assassination, the whole town blamed them. Everyone I knew who had reported on Syria was talking about Ra'id that day posting pictures of him, writing that his death was the end of the Syrian revolution. Because Ra'id was one of a handful of people in Syria who was still living by the principles of the revolution. He was still talking about nonviolent resistance and democracy, civil society, and freedom. Ra'id was there from the very first protests in Syria and stuck by his principles while so many others either died or fell off the train. Now, he too was gone. Hiba got the news over WhatsApp. At that point, I just wasn't aware of anything anymore. I never thought that moment was going to come. I never imagined that someone like Ra'id could die. Like, no, he would be, he would be one of the ones that stayed. The funeral lasted three days. Hundreds of people came. There were programs on Radio Fresh remembering Ra'id and Hamouds, their childhoods, talking to their friends, chatting about their legacy. After Ra'id's death, you can still hear glimpses of Radio Fresh's classic dark humor. They continue to make fun of the president and the local factions. Here's a radio drama about a local guy partitioning his house in Kafranbil to host refugees. But these refugees aren't displaced Syrian women and children. It turns out, no, he wants to host French people fleeing their own country after the Yellow Vest protests, in particular, beautiful French women. Mary, Sonia, Emily sleeping in the streets? Not on my watch. I found the episode hilarious, a sign that Ra'id's spirit was well and alive at Radio Fresh. 
I wondered if Rat's friend, Hadi, felt the same way. Do you still feel that? Do you still feel that at the radio station? Yeah, I, I don't think things would be the same again. I mean, despite all my attempts. I mean, we're, we're trying to manufacture a laugh, but our hearts are not the same. I don't want to be pessimistic, but this is the truth. There's a talk that Raed gave two years ago at the Oslo Freedom Forum. He opens with footage of the aftermath of a bombing, describing the smell of burned bodies, of guns. The audience is wrapped and Raed is gripping. But he also looks very tired of trying to convince these Westerners in peaceful Norway to care about the more than 500,000 Syrians who have died in this conflict and the millions that remain. And yet there he is. He hadn't given up. He ends his speech saying, there is nothing prettier than a flower that defies death, chaos, and destruction, and instead blooms and radiates hope. Yeah, just like Radio Fresh. Dana Balut, she's a filmmaker and a producer of the podcast Kerning Cultures, that's Kerning with a K, Kerning Cultures, which runs stories like this one from the Middle East. Last year, uh, Radio Fresh lost its main source of funding when the United States withdrew stabilization aid to Syria. The employees worked without pay for five months. Then they found some temporary funding, but that runs out in March. They're looking for new ways to stay afloat. Mic check, one, two, no drones, nukes, guns, too. Who you gonna run to? They say, who you think you Gandhi? Our well, program was produced today by Sean Cole. Special thanks today to Dr. A.J. Manhapra, Maya Salovitz, Andrew Leland, Andy Glancett, Paul Wilson, Neil Verma, Jason Loviglio, Hugh Chignell, Dr. Brian Goldman, Rami Ferris, Abdallah Saloum, Abdulwari Thalbakor, John Yeager, Isam Khatib, Raja Abdurrahim, and Blueprint Post-Production. Our website, thisamericanlife.org. You can listen to any of our archive of over 600 programs for absolutely free. This American Life is delivered to public radio stations by PRX, the Public Radio Exchange. Support for This American Life comes from Constant Contact, whose marketing advisors work directly with small businesses for monthly marketing guidance, personalized support, an email campaign optimization. Learn more at constantcontact.com. Thanks, as always, to our program's co-founder, Mr. Troy Malatia. You know, he was out in his neighborhood, and there on the sidewalk, he saw some of those American girl dolls his neighbors left there. Well, he picked them up. Mary, Sonia, Emily sleeping in the streets? Not on my watch. I'm Ira Glass. Back next week with more stories of this American life.